Our scripture is found in Mark. We're at chapter 14 now and over to verse 43. Mark 14, 43. And we'll read about seven verses or so. This is the account in Mark's gospel of the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. We've seen Jesus now for many weeks in discussions and controversies and in various back and forth conversations with the various leaders of the Jewish people, usually in and around the temple. And there they have had multiple discussions. He answering their questions as to his identity and so forth. And they seeking to trap him in order to get evidence, in order to convict him and execute him. Let's don't be deceived about the motives that have been involved up until now. But now we come all the way to the betrayal. Christ has spent this evening with His disciples in the room where they had the Lord's table together. They prayed together. Jesus gave them quite a few uh, points of exhortation, rebuke promise he's prayed that high priestly prayer he's among them they have sung a hymn and they've walked out of the room down onto the streets of Jerusalem out to the edge of the city across the Kidron Valley into a garden and so we pick up the narrative and immediately while he was still speaking Judas came one of the twelve and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer have given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. All four Gospels record this episode, and the reason is it's extremely important. For this is the beginning of the passion of Christ in His suffering. What has happened just before these moments that we read about took place, is Jesus had sought to pray, and had gone far a little ways away from His disciples, taking a few with Him, leaving others behind, and He asked that they would pray and watch with him. He knew his time was coming. He knew what was going to happen. Judas had left the meeting that they were in earlier that evening. And Jesus said, whatever you do, do quickly. And Judas went out then to make the arrangements to meet with the officials. And by the way, these were the officials and their police force from the temple. This was the... Sanhedrin, the elders, the chief priests, 
they were all together in on this. They had been planning and plotting this for a very long time, but now they had someone who was willing to work with them, and that is Judas. And they paid him a sum of money. It was Judas' job to find Jesus in a place where they could arrest Jesus rather inconspicuously. As Jesus pointed out in the narrative, He was with them every day in the temple, almost every day there for two solid weeks. He had been in the temple at length. And these very same people had been quizzing Him and interrogating Him and confronting Him. At any point along the way, the temple guard could have come up and simply placed Jesus in, in, uh, under arrest and taken Him in. But they didn't do that. And you know why. We've seen it over and over. There's a pretty good crowd gathered in the temple here around this festive time. And many of the people, a huge number of the people, were listening to Jesus, paying attention, getting a lot out of what He was saying, learning a lot. At the same time, Jesus was continually provoking these people to arrest Him by His plain, blunt statements of condemnation and judgment upon them. So we had a situation here that had been boiling and it reached the point. They wanted to arrest Jesus. They, they wanted to try and convict Him and execute Him. They just had to do it prudently. They had to find a way to get Jesus secretly, quietly. And Judas was the man. He was on the inside. Judas would know where Jesus was at almost any time. And the speculation, which I find very um, plausible by Alfred Edersheim, one of the old-time great New Testament scholars, wrote The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, very exhaustive book. He, uh, Edersheim speculates that it very well could be that the, the arresting party had taken Judas's direction and had gone to the house where Jesus had been. But when they got there, Jesus had already departed. The house, it is speculated, belonged to the parents of John Mark. And John Mark was awakened and he joined the party and followed them to where Judas led them all and that was to the garden. Edersheim further speculates that it's likely that the garden was a private garden. It very likely was owned by John Mark's family. It was a place where Jesus often went. He went for prayer. He went for respite, relief, even probably to sleep and to enjoy. It was a garden called Gethsemane. It was a garden that had fruit in it as any other garden, especially the olive. And the word Gethsemane means oil press. And it was in Gethsemane in this garden that Jesus then in prayer Praise to the Father to let the cup, that is the cup of wrath, the cup of the judgment upon sin that God had promised all throughout the Old Testament that He was going to pour out on His people. But He was going to pour it out upon Christ. So we have now reached, as Jesus indicates in the text, the hour. When they were having the party and the wedding feast and they had wine flowing, and it was wonderful. Jesus said, Mine hour is not yet come. But track along a few years into Jesus' ministry, and now we find 
The hour has come. This is the hour of fulfillment. Jesus speaks generally of Scripture being fulfilled in this hour. Now, specifically, he's referring to Zechariah chapter 13. But generally, he's speaking of all of the Scriptures that point to the atoning work of Christ are now beginning to take place in this hour. And so we have here the narrative. The, uh, the thing that I think is very helpful is to go back and look at the, uh, um, the narratives of the other Gospels. And they're equally short. It won't take but a minute. You may remain seated. But I'm going to just refer them. And in each case, I'm going to point out a couple of things that are maybe not in the narrative of Mark, but are very meaningful. Especially do we get more of the sayings of Christ during this garden hour when He is there with His disciples. And let me read now the, the, the account from Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 47. While He was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. As I indicated, this was the Jewish authorities, probably not any Roman authority. There may have been a permission, but not likely. At this point, everything that's spoken of, the officers, the captain, the servant of the high priest, the crowds, even the description of the weaponry used indicates that this was the, the, the temple guard. These were the enforcement officers of the chief priest as they, of course, enforced civil law. Rome, by and large, would allow countries to enforce its own civil law as long as it not, did not come in conflict with Roman law. Now, they did not have the power to execute without permission, but they did have the power to arrest and try, condemn, and, and judge according to their laws. And so this is the, the Jewish outfit these are the leaders. These are what are referred to in the Old Testament quite often as the shepherds of Israel. And here they come with clubs and staves. Clubs, by the way, was, was a particular instrument that was used in crowd control. They were afraid they might draw a little bit of attention and some of these people that had supported Jesus so strongly might show up to defend Jesus and they would have an issue on their hands in handling a small mob. And so they were ready for that. They were ready for almost any violent contingency here. And the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. That's the sign of betrayal. These people needed to know exactly who was being arrested. There was no room for any mistakes here. You know, you didn't want to grab Bartholomew, you know, or Thomas Didymus or someone like that. You wanted Jesus himself. And so you, you, you had to have someone, and Judas fit the bill, to actually betray. And he's going to do it, ironically, with a sign of a kiss. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Judas addresses Jesus in the most respectful terms in calling him literally my rabbi or my teacher, or my master. Here he was betraying Jesus, but he confessed that Jesus was his master, his teacher. What a 
uh, presumptuous and horrible, horrible thing to do. And he says he kissed him. And the word used in one of these narratives, I forget which one, it, it was an aggressive kind of a kiss. It was an embrace where he sort of grabbed Jesus and pulled him in to embrace him and then hung on and hung on a little longer and you know, made sure he had Jesus uh, uh, in, his, uh, in his grasp and in, and in his uh, control. He, it, it was an aggressive. It was really kind of a, an offensive thing. That's why uh, Jesus said, friend, do what you came to do. You don't have to make all this show of pretense about how you love me and you respect me and you honor me. You know what you're here for. Go ahead and do it. And Jesus here in this narrative, we find out that Jesus actually says something to Judas. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. That laying hands upon Jesus and seizing him by the Jewish authorities is going to become a little point of emphasis in Peter's preaching a few days later. When he says, you, by wicked hands, have crucified and slain the Christ. The, the wickedness of their hands. It shows that they were aggressively and intentionally going after Jesus himself. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. Here is one we learn in another narrative, which we'll read in just a moment, who that is. But the Lord says to him, put your sword back. Later on that morning, Jesus is going to make an appeal to the authorities is my kingdom is not of this world else my servants would fight. This is a very important understanding of the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God on earth is not defended by the sword. It is not an earthly kingdom. It does not compare. It is not a conflict amongst people. It is a whole new dimension. The kingdom of God now is moving through the person of Christ and into the resurrection into a new order, into a new creation, into a new heaven, a new earth, a new humanity. A lot of the problems we have in this country on two counts and in our churches in theology is all about the millennium. Well, your millennial view has to do with well, how do you perceive the kingdom of God? And Jesus Himself as the King and His ruling over it for time and for eternity. How you answer those questions causes you to fall out one way or another with some of these views or maybe none of them at all. It's also important to know what the nature of the kingdom is when it comes to our relationship to the current earthly kingdom, to Caesar. Is it the job of the church to arm itself and to take on physical combat, which is always symbolized in Scripture with the sword, to take up the sword against the state, 
the kingdom of this world. How you resolve that will determine a lot of your activity in your relationship as a citizen, not only of this world, which is passing away, which is in darkness, which is not going to survive, which is under condemnation, which is under a terminus. There's a day when this world will end. And how you fall out on that issue will determine a lot of your viewpoint. Very significant things here that are being brought up. But how then should the Scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? This is an emphasis we must not miss at all, ever. What we're dealing with now are the principal events of God's determinate counsel and foreknowledge. God's working out all things according to His purposes in grace for our salvation. Sure, all of these events are taking place, but none of them are outside the providence of God. Nothing of them are outside the control of God. Nothing of them are outside the knowledge of God. In fact, nothing of these are really outside ultimately of the will of God. This is God's will being accomplished and it had been foretold repeatedly by the prophets. Because you see what has happened in the garden just immediately prior to this moment Jesus, on His knees before His Father, had accepted the cup. The cup of God's wrath that was prepared for sinners. Jesus wished it to be passed. Preferred it be passed. But nevertheless, as the obedient Son, under the absolute loving will of His Father, had accepted the cup. So now everything that was about to happen, the rough stuff, the seizing, the beating, the scourging, and on, finally to the crucifixion, all of this was within God's plan and purposes in order to bring salvation to sinners. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. See how Jesus is earnestly and deliberately acknowledging how the Word of God is coming to pass in His life at this time. In fact, it is at this time when they arrest Him as though He were a common criminal instead of a peaceful civil arrest, which they would have done in the temple, theoretically, they're coming now with this violent arrest, seizing him, bringing all of the, the police power, in order that he might fulfill the Scriptures. Specifically this one, Isaiah 53. He was numbered with the transgressors. There's your shame, the humility, the insult. The absolute derogatory disposition against the gentle Son of God was that He was a, a thug, a violent person, a criminal. 
somebody that had to be seized, somebody that you have to throw a net over, that you have to knock around and you have to grasp him, hold him down unless he does some kind of violence. What an insult. This is the beginning. This is the beginning of all of the insults and all of the mocking and everything that Jesus was to take. Then, as our other text in Mark said, then all the disciples left him and fled. Once again, a fulfillment of the Zechariah passage. Now let's look uh, to Luke and the account there, and you'll see the same material. But... Um, Let me find my verse. Has anybody found it in Luke yet? <laughs> oh, there it is. It's at the top of the page. This is Luke uh, twenty-two forty-seven. While he was still speaking, and by the way, the speaking is he's just uh, got the disciples awake from their sleeping and told them that the time was coming, that his betrayal was at hand. He had warned them. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw that what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. If you read Mark alone, you think that this act of Peter was impulsive, immediate, reactionary. But here there's a little discussion. There's an asking of permission to fight. Now Peter didn't pay any attention to it. Maybe not have heard it. I don't know. Maybe have already acted and they're wondering, should we do this or not? Jesus gives him the rebuke here. We get a little more detail. When those were around him saw... What would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. And then Jesus says, but this is your hour. This hour belongs to Satan and the power of darkness. Here's the light of the world being attacked by the most evil forces of darkness on planet earth. Even Judas is not let off the hook. It said, and Satan entered into Judas when he began to do his act of betrayal. Here's the Lord recognizing what He's up against. He's walking into the pitch black filth, violence, and horrors of Satan's worst. Jesus is going through the valley of the shadow of death with all of its tortures and with all of its terrors. Then, finally, the Gospel of John. This is John 18. And when Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the Kidron Valley 
where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing that all that would happen to him, came forward and said, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Here's an I am saying. You know, John's full of them. I'm the light of the world. I'm the water of life. I'm the door to the sheepfold. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the bread of life. Here's another one. I am he. It is I whom you seek. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's a detail we hadn't picked up just yet, but the gravity of the moment and the awesome presence of Christ, when he identified himself as to who he was and did not deny and did not shirk, did not run, did not flee, did not beg for mercy, did not try to explain his way out of it, did not try to avoid in any way the cup that was going to be presented to him. When he stood up to it, they backed away. And he said to them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And that was about all that the disciples needed to hear was permission from Jesus to be let go. Because generally you would arrest a band or you would arrest a group of people that were kind of in this conspiracy together. But it was Christ and Christ alone they were seeking. Because you see, Christ and Christ alone was all that really mattered. We didn't need a group of martyrs to the cause. We needed the perfect Son of God to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Jesus spoke these words just previously in his high priestly prayer. He prays to the Father, I've taken all that you have given me and I have kept them and not one of them is lost except the son of perdition, that is Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. A little more detail there. The servant's name was Malchus. More detail still. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath, for, I, for shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus and Peter, we won't review it here, it had several conversations over the months, about the decease that Jesus would accomplish, the exodus, the death. And Peter, time and again, seemed to not quite understand. And now he is right up against it. And the Lord reminds him, this is the cup that I told you that I would be drinking. But notice this, it's the cup that the Father has given me. Jesus came willingly. He came to lay down His life for the sheep. They were not going to take His life from Him. Even if we follow through and are able to get to the very crucifixion, 
we'll see the very way Jesus died, the very way He breathed His last, the very way He ended His time upon the cross when He died, it was a laying down of His life. It was not a taking away of His life. He, he chose to drink the bitter cup. And then the, the narrative continues in a couple of more verses. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound Him. First they led Him to Annas, for He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. They bound Him. There was no reason to bind Jesus. He willingly submitted. He didn't resist. He rebuked those who did resist. This was coming not from their wicked hands only. It certainly was coming from their wicked hands, but it was coming from the Father. He was willfully taking the cup. And when it says they bound Him, it's interesting. That's the picture of the sacrificial animal. The sacrificial animal was bound and taken then and presented to, to whom? Before the priest. In this case, the father-in-law, the, the acting de facto patriarchal high priest. They brought him bound. Later on we find they brought him bound to Pilate. They kept him bound the whole time. And the reason of course is he is that Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is that full and final sacrifice. He is that one whose blood will avail for the sins of all sinful mankind that comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He is dying for His people. That's what, that's what His mother had heard at the very beginning. His Father, when the name of Jesus was being placed upon Him, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. And that's where Jesus is headed. They're bringing Him bound. And then one final thing. Talking about Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Isn't that an interesting little phrase? Now in context back there, they were discussing uh, how much of the the, uh, the Nazarite ban or the Nazarene ban should they arrest and what should they do and how should they go about it and they were seeking advice and Caiaphas came up with the idea we don't, we don't need to get everybody. We will have this man, this man will be executed, we will do it to him and him alone and we will bear the consequences. Let his blood be upon us and our children. And so he's speaking here of Jesus being the one that the death is to focus upon in place of the others. But ironically, it's the most beautiful statement in the New Testament of substitutionary atonement. He had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And that's exactly what you have. Now, I spoke of the, the Scriptures being fulfilled, and let me just... Read that passage for you. Zechariah 7, I mean 13, verse 7. Remember the very last phrase in two of these? It says that the, the disciples fled. In fact, one of them continues on about Mark himself fled. 
He had evidently had only had on his silk pajamas, <laughs> or they were linen, and not his outer coat. And when he was, they started to seize him, he got away. And he got away, leaving behind his pajamas and fled naked from the scene. Fled nevertheless. All the disciples fled. Every last one of them. Even Peter, who followed eventually afar off. But they all fled the garden. Listen to the prophecy. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land, declares the Lord. That speaks of judgment to come. In the whole land, two-thirds shall be cut off and one-third shall be left alive. That speaks of a remnant of the people that will be saved. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one who refines silver and test them as gold is tested. That's the remnant being purified and tried through the sanctifying grace of God and God's purgatory work upon His people by His Spirit in addition to His purgatory work upon His people by the blood, the purging of the blood of Christ, there's also a refinement of fire by the Holy Spirit. This is talking about the taking, the selecting, the drawing, the developing, the nurturing of the Christian community, of the people of Christ. And they will call upon My name and I will answer them. Replete in Scripture is whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord is to call for salvation and the Lord promises. Here you have the redeemed people of God. And I will say, you are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. And by thus saying and by thus declaring and by thus accomplishing, the Lord fulfills His covenant that He made to all of His people in all of time past.